Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? There's a line of dialogue in Richard Donner's 2006 action thriller 16 Blocks, spoken by Bruce Willis. Oh, you know Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis was one of three, but actually multiple, investors slash promoters. Others, including Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, were all investors in the Planet Hollywood chain of restaurants. How about that? But Bruce Willis here plays Detective Jack Mosley, and he says the following. Life's too long, and guys like you make it even longer. That's my favorite line of this flick. Now, one of the contender lines also spoken by Jack Mosley. You're a sunny little shit. I'll give you that much. And then, of course, David Morse, who plays his former partner slash current commander, Detective Frank Nugent, he says, this changes everything, Jack. And the way he says it is blood chilling. And I love it. And then, of course, another great dialogue is between Frank Nugent, the bad guy, and Eddie Bunker, played by rapper-actor Most Def. Can't get lucky all the time, says Frank Nugent. And then, of course, Eddie Bunker rejoinders with, you can be smart every day, though. Good dialogue. It's not pitch perfect. It's not tip-top, but there are some good moments. And mostly this dialogue is sold by the gravitas and quality and the gravelly voice of some of the speakers. Now, my favorite scene is actually a two-way tie between the very beginning of the film, like in the first five minutes, when you have Bruce Willis, old, baggy-eyed, fat, carrying one hell of a limp. He walks into a crime scene where he's basically babysitting, and none of the other cops take him seriously because he's well past his prime. He's an alcoholic. He probably gets three hours of sleep a night, if at all. This is all carried on his face and his body language and his gait and his slumped overness. You get the impression that this guy has seen better days well back in the fucking past. But in the first five minutes, he's told not to touch anything and to just secure the crime scene. The first thing he does is go to the cupboard, find a liquor bottle that obviously does not belong to him, and he starts drinking on the job and reading his newspaper. This tells you all you need to know about this character. And honestly, if this film had spent another 15 or 20 minutes just showing him going through his daily routine, I would have been riveted by that. Because you're so used to Bruce Willis, the Armageddon diehard franchise, shit ton of action films that were both solid onto these B action thrillers that are direct releases on Netflix. But you're used to him being omniscient and unkillable, bulletproof, diehard, whatever terminology you select. But here, it's him at his best as far as acting. His best roles ever, from an acting perspective, are in those films where he's understated, where he's quiet. That's not to say that when he talks, he's not acting well. It's just that he can really act through his body language and through the command of silence in scenes that he has. For example, if I were to do a brief list of Bruce Willis's best acting in a handful of films, it's easy to draw from memory. Unbreakable, The Sixth Sense, Mercury Rising, 16 Blocks. He's even really good in The Jackal as the villain. He does better acting-wise when the material gives him room to move and space to breathe, and you get to spend just time with the character. So I love the first five minutes of this flick. But then, of course, also going to Bruce Willis is later in the film, where he's in this bar where the shit's about to go down. You've got corrupt cops. You've got so much suspense in the room. It's like carbon dioxide filling up whatever breathable oxygen they have. You've got most death, a lot of confusion. You've got this building sense of dread. And Bruce Willis makes a haunting realization. And from that moment on, you know that that's going to be the catalyst that drives the remainder of the energy and the velocity of the film. And it's a great scene in the bar where Bruce Willis makes a decision that's going to affect, well, half the fucking city. So there you have it. Two-way tie between my two favorite scenes of 16 Blocks. Before we cinematically, theatrically, swan dive into this sterling, stirring introduction, as you've come to expect, no doubt. Now, these cinematic release reviews, these dissections, this analysis that I provide on some of my favorite slick flick picks, this is fun as shit. And it's very riveting, it's very enthralling, it's very engrossing, and it's very time-consuming. However, 
I will tell you that while I have a severe, intense, and unkillable passion for film, the book in my Chemo Walk Sessions library that I am the most proud of, and I think that it offers the most great life advice, is White Collar Black Belt, which I have released 56 episodes of, along with 12 accompanying Chemo Walk Sessions shorts. And throughout that gamut of episodes, I have interviewed over nine people. Now, yes, it does talk about how to survive the white-collar environment, but that's just the beginning. It also speaks to some of my experiences with cancer, life experiences, ridiculously embarrassing moments, quotes, scenes from movies, TV shows, books, authors, celebrities, politicians, philosophers, athletes, criminals, attorneys, every character in life that you can imagine who I've been able to draw some sort of advice inspiration, or awareness from. That is what I highly recommend for any of you who are trying to look for any guidance, who are trying to look for any humor, who are trying to find anything that takes your mind off of the daily fucking grind. So White Collar Black Belt is still operational. I have been devoting a shit ton of time to these slick flick picks, but White Collar Black Belt, please go back, check it out. You can listen to the intro if you want. It's a nice gloss over of kind of what to expect. If you are working somewhere that you are either mildly content with or downright miserable at, or somewhere in the vague purgatory of in-between, please listen to White Collar Black Belt. Also, I have Whiskey Wednesdays with Wham Bam Cam, which I will be releasing the 10th episode later this week, where it's just two guys drinking whiskey and talking about life and how to make life better, talk about our own personal experiences, and anything else that two XY chromosome life forms can dream up and drudge up. Also, I have an original horror short story that I write and that Wham Bam Cam, myself, and sometimes a narrator, read, which is a terrifying tale called The Basement Party. Four episodes have been released, two episodes to go. Please check it out. I dare you. And then, of course, there is this one that I'm really pushing because it is so fantastic. It introduces you to an entirely new podcast called Baraska, and that is called Darker Mile Marker, an episodic analysis of each episode of the Q Code podcast Baraska. And it's funny, it's terrifying, and it is a splendiferously good time, except no substitutes. So all you have to do is scroll through my Chemohawk Sessions library, and you can find all of these different pursuits. I highly recommend all, but White Collar Black Belt is basically my magnum opus. And these slick flick picks are quickly becoming an intense and very, very relaxing cinematic diversion and a form of elite and elegant escapism. Thank you for your attention and your patience, cinematic fanatics, and podience. And also know that there will be some additional Chemohawk Sessions books coming down the pipe. I will be doing a session on how to write better. I will be doing a session on history and moments in history that we forgot. I will have a separate book called Chemohawk Confessionals, where I will talk specifically about my own experiences with my favorite and most beloved yet hated enemy, cancer. Please, Listen on Apple Podcasts so that you can leave a star rating and comments. Those comments are very important to me because it allows me to have some guidance. It allows me to be introduced to your insights. Please provide me any feedback on what you think, how I'm doing, if you're enjoying it. Please make all of your comrades, cohorts, colleagues, and companions aware of Chemohawk Sessions. And if there's any slick flick picks you want me to consider doing a review of, please let me know. I'm happy to receive any and all backfeed or feedback. Now nah, we'll stick with backfeed. I like words that start with a part of your body. <music> Greetings, cinematic fanatics. Allow me the bodyguarding, chauffeuring, 16 timed, cock blocked, and 16 blocks of gridlocked traffic, sacred, shady cop shield duty of securing the metaphorical witness of your attention, and maintaining your attention for however long it takes. My overage, overweight, shuffling on one good leg and a floundering liver self, to usher you the distance of 16 blocks to your cinematic court date destination. Our method of transportation, another suspense-sustaining, witness-incessantly-complaining, slick-flick-pick, an entertaining, slick-flick-explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Chemohawk Sessions. You are my cinematic fanatic. I, your worthwhile fucking cinephile, 
For your 16th episode, I review a briskly burning formulaic formula adult with a few surprises sprinkled upon this cinematic confection. This crime action thriller flick that was both critically and financially mixed, but when you immerse yourself in this slick flick, you remain transfixed by the solid fucking performances, particularly a rough-looking Bruce who drinks on the clock cocktails straight and unmixed. I have adored this film since my in-the-company-of-three-additional-amigos at the time initial theater viewing in Houston fucking Texas. I admit this flick is far from perfect and distanced from pristine, but it does not shy from revealing streets that are gritty, far from pretty, and a collection of coppers most unclean. This is a slick cinematic experience that touches a trilogy of genres, crime, action, thriller. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. There was a time when Bruce was a bartender, then a private investigator in real life, then as a lauded character on Moonlight, who knew his career would rocket launch to a brilliant brightness, igniting the rooftop of Nakatomi Plaza and lasting well through the night. While his shady, slobby character here is nothing to this genre, novel, or new, he committed to his character's bum leg by keeping a rock in his fucking shoe. That's a true story. Morse, David Morse, is of course the coarse Norse-sized villain, constantly chewing gum as he pursues his foil with one leg bum, and so too does he chew the scenery. I offer you, regarding this straightforward, on winding, squalor-rife streets, claustrophobic ramshackle buildings, and crumbling crawl spaces, jagged alleyways, and over-peopled subway tunnels, efficient action thriller. The flick's witness, who initially seems witless, Eddie Bunker, may have been a high school b-ball dunker, or possibly a flunker, but by the end of this slick flick, he will be a cake maker baker. Jack Mosley pours on-the-clock liquor from the middle shelf in the company of a top-shelf cast. 16 Blocks, circa March 2006. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn, stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as fuck, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair I just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out, as I unwind the daily grind with a slick fucking flick pick. 16 Blocks is the flick, so very slick, hence my F-Stars pick. When slick flick pick is near, stick around till Falsetto Prophet's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action, lens distraction, and, with the right slick flick pick, grant satisfaction. I'm your worthwhile cinephile. You're my cinematic fanatics. Together, we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative clock while feasting our eyes on this slick flick pick prize. Enter with me, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind of reality. I offer you pick 16, slick flick pick, save the witness who talks less. Via violence, they'll silence. 16 Blocks, 2006. Today, we'll discuss how to keep your calm, wits, and temper when transporting a garrulous con who can't stop talking. How to cross every major fucking street without jaywalking. How to thwart corrupt cops who you they're stalking. And my lingering recommendation to change the film's title to 16 Minutes of Testimony Blocking or 16 Narrow Ass Escapes. Your worthwhile cinephile, falsetto profit. Attention, cinematic fanatics. Please rate me and leave comments on Apple. I am not obsessed with seeing words about myself. I am not that narcissistic. It's really just a matter of keeping me honest and letting me know how much you enjoy these episodes. I very much appreciate your support and your reviews. Thank you. Now, the tagline for 16 Blocks was, For a New York cop and his witness, the distance between life and death just got very short. Well, my tagline is, For a drunk and a motor mouth, the distance between sobriety and silence is non-existent. Ooh, I thought that was pretty good. Taking pride in my own stride. Poetically, of course.
You cannot talk about a Bruce Willis movie without addressing Bruce Willis. I love Bruce Willis. For those of you that think he's not a believable action hero, I say bullshit. He went from being this soap opera, comedy-rich, small guy in Moonlighting, which he was no doubt successful in his own right, to being a believable action star in Die Hard. Remember Michael Keaton? Remember everybody when he was like coming from Mr. Mom and the likes of all of these silly roles? It was announced that he was going to be Batman and Tim Burton's Batman. And all these naysayers were like, fuck, are you kidding me? Michael Keaton is Batman? Fuck no. We reject this premise. And then they watched Batman. And you know what they were eating? They were eating crow and bat. They were eating a hybrid of crow bat or bro or crat because Michael Keaton was awesome. He was completely fucking believable as both Bruce Wayne and his alter ego, Batman. Now, Bruce Willis is a bona fide action star. He got buff. He's in great shape, usually, not in this role, of course, for purposes of the acting, but he is totally charismatic. He's shrewd. He is very instinctual with his acting, and he is so goddamn likable. But he is great in this flick, and like I mentioned at the beginning, this is one of those movies that gives him time, and it gives him space, and it gives him breathing room for him to really let his acting abilities come out of every fucking pore. I love Bruce Willis in this movie. He brought tears to my eyes in Unbreakable and in Mercury Rising. He is a good actor. And whenever I hear someone say that he can't act, now I understand that the last 10 years of his career were nothing like the first 15 years of his career, but that's okay. I love Walter Bruce Willis, who was born March 19th in 1955. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of information on him because I love him so much. You have probably not seen a movie in your life that does not have either Bruce Willis in it or that's Bruce Willis adjacent. He was in the Die Hard franchise. He was in The Last Boy Scout, Pulp Fiction, 12 Monkeys, which he does a great job in 12 Monkeys, The Fifth Element, The Jackal, where he plays a rare villain, Looper, The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Sin City. He's been in so many fucking movies, and I absolutely love him. Did you know that he was a bartender? In fact, he was deemed one of the best bartenders in New York City. Yep, true story. And it was... John Goodman, who we also like as an actor here, that said that Bruce was the best bartender in New York. He said that in 2017. He kept an entire joint entertained all night, and he just kept the show going. He was amazing. I love Bruce Willis. And in films where he takes a back seat to his own stardom, that's when he is at his best, I believe. Also, he has depicted a shit ton of military characters in his films. The Siege, Hearts War, Tears of the Sun, G.I. Joe Retaliation. He grew up in a military family. Now, the vast majority of these tidbits are from Wikipedia, by the way. Willis has publicly sold Girl Scout cookies. Mmm. Tagalongs. Oh, no. Lemonades. I like lemonades. For the United States Armed Forces. And he actually considered joining the military, but then his age at the time deterred him from completely pursuing that possibility. And in 2003, he visited Iraq as part of the USO tour, singing to the troops with his band, The Accelerators. Here's a guy who was married to Demi Moore, who for so many years was incredibly hot. He's got a very attractive daughter. Well, he's got several kids, but Rumor Willis is attractive. She's in some cool things. Also, I like how he does something that a lot of actors don't do, which is he remains vague about his political standing. I love that actors can just focus on their acting, which is what they are paid for and what we love them for. And I hate with an intense rancor. I hate with a pronounced apoplexy all of these fucking actors that do not have philosophical or political science credentials, they don't have as many life experiences as they should have, to try to take the mantle and the platform of politics. I hate when celebrities use their celebrity clout to push forth or to sensationalize or try to add momentum to political ideologies. I hate it. I fucking hate it. Now, I recognize that just because an actor is your occupation, you are an American, you vote, you have rights just like every other citizen, but there's something that you have that a lot of people are not either privileged or cursed enough to have. You have a real following and you have a colossal platform. So why don't you just keep your opinions to things that you are intimate with, such as what you do for a living and what film does for you, but don't go down the very serpentine and surreptitious heavy-handed 
machine gun mouthing of your stance on various political concerns and political questions and political ideologies. I fucking hate it. So back in 2006, when he was promoting this film, 16 Blocks in Manhattan, a reporter asked him about his opinion on the Bush administration. Bruce Willis cut him off and said the following, I'm sick of answering this fucking question. (laughs) I'm a Republican only as far as I want a smaller government. I want less government intrusion. I want them to stop shitting on my money and your money and tax dollars that we get 50% of every year. I want them to be fiscally responsible, and I want these goddamn lobbyists out of Washington. Do that, and I'll say I'm a Republican. I hate the government, okay? I'm apolitical. Write that down. I'm not a Republican. What I like about that statement is, one, the profanity incorporated into it makes it sound honest. And two, I like that he said himself first, I want them to stop shitting on my money. So he identified his own concern first, which also has an air of honesty or truth to it. So I like that he just wants to do his work and, you know, be left alone in the political realm. That's just from one moment in time. I have no idea how much time he spends on his soapbox talking about international affairs. But as a general rule, I love actors for their acting and noteworthy achievements that they have in life. I do not give a shit about an actor's political position. There were some contender titles that I had for this flick. Dirty Cops, Clean Execution, Witless Witness. Winescent. Now, nescient's a good word. It means lacking knowledge or ignorant, which is exactly what the witness seems to appear to be at the beginning. But then you learn there's more in store for both Bruce Willis and the audience. Another title I had was From Lawbreaker to Cake Maker Baker. 12 Steps, 16 Blocks, and lastly, Con Cleaner Than Cop. Any of those titles would have been more than satisfactory, but I ultimately settled on what I settled on for the same reason that I always do. I gave it a shit ton of time, I considered every conceivable angle, and I picked the best one with the most readily available information I had at the time. Time for some very brief TT or trivialized trivia. In order to make Detective Jack Mosley's limp look realistic on screen, Bruce Willis put a pebble in his shoe and kept it there throughout the length of the shoot. Wow. Is it method acting? I don't know. But it certainly has an air of dead of And of course, these come from IMBD. The trivialized trivia always comes from IMBD. Yasin Bey appears credited in this movie by his then artistic name, Most Deaf. He changed it to Yasin Bey in 2011. They're both crazy names. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I mean, whatever you want to do. It's up to you. It's America. You can go outside. You can walk everywhere on your hands with a propeller hat. You know a propeller hat. You wear the hat and has a propeller on it and it spins around. I wonder if you walked on your hands and you wore a propeller hat and you spun around on your hands fast enough, maybe you could generate enough force with the propeller that you could start helicoptering yourself around upside down. I wonder about these things. But then again, physics, that was not my first passion. It was film. Richard Donner's last film before he passed away on July 5th, 2021, at 91. 91 years old. We should all be so lucky. 16 Blocks is a 2006 American action thriller film directed by Richard Donner, starring Bruce Willis, Most Def, and David Morse. The film unfolds in the real-time narration method. I'm going to say it does in a way, but it's definitely not as real-time as the 1995 flick Nick of Time with Johnny Depp, because that film occurs in the exact time of the movie that is driving the plot. It marked the final directed film for Donner, in addition to the last acting role for his cousin and frequent collaborator, Steve Kahan. Now, the budget was about $52 million, and it ultimately made about $65 million, so I would call that a slight success, if not breaking even. Because remember, you always have to incorporate the cost of advertising and marketing. And it's about 102 minutes long, which, of course, you know that the time throughout the course of the film is already longer than that, because the movie starts before 8 in the morning, and he has to get his witness to the courthouse by 10. So that's two hours right there, plus what happens at the courthouse, and then the time preceding 8 o'clock. So it's not exactly 102 minutes for purposes of the time constraints of the film itself. Interestingly, the production costs, it says, were around $55 million, but the film made $51 million on rentals and remained on the DVD Top 50 chart for 17 consecutive weeks. I could see that. I could see it being one of those films, kind of like 21 Bridges, where you just want to watch a dirty cop film over your ravioli at home. I'm not exactly sure. Now, you're probably familiar with Richard Donner. He directed a shit ton of films, The Goonies, Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 2, 3, and 4. 
He made that comedy western Maverick with Mel Gibson. And then, of course, Assassins with Sly Stone and Antonio Banderas. And then he made 16 Blocks in 2006. He's had a decent career. The filming locations, like you would think it's supposedly all in New York, but it was filmed in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. The bar, Casey's Bar, was in downtown Los Angeles. You have Lower Bay Station, Toronto, Canada. You've got Toronto Film Studios, and you do have New York City and Los Angeles, California. So it's kind of a spectrum of filming locations. And I'll tell you, I love flicks. I love the slick flick pick's ability to entertain, to distract, to provide you a much needed and enthusiastic form of escapism. I just wish that I was as passionate and as skilled at flick analysis as I was in other facets of life. Because it's too late in my life to become a director. I'm too short to be the leading man actor at only five foot ten. And I don't know that I have the mental vigor or the stamina to face the amount of rejection that you face with how competitive the film market is. But I really love watching films and I love pondering on them. I love analyzing them and discussing them with hosts, with guests alike. I really enjoy these slick flick picks. And I appreciate you attending these journeys with me. As these are definitely relaxing and fruitful for me, I hope so too that as you're driving or as you're knitting or fucking crocheting or whittling on your porch down in Abilene, Texas or north of the Illinois border or on some islet in Nantucket or in the outback of Australia, kind of like where Guy Pierce was getting bloody revenge across the wasteland, I hope that you are enjoying these slick flick picks with the same exuberance, if not a richer exuberance, than I have in sharing them. We start 16 Blocks, Warner Brothers, also Alcon Entertainment, and Millennium Films. Okay, we learned at the beginning that Bruce Willis's badge number is SHIELD 227, and he's providing his last will and testament. Okay, say what? As a general rule, as far as plot devices with regard to time and what we've seen before or what we're going to see, I only really like these if they're done well. So an example of it being utilized well is in The Prestige with Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. But in these films where it's more of a gimmick or it's kind of a cheap, cost-effective trick to mess with the audience, I don't like seeing something at the beginning of the film, which clearly is going to happen in the future, and then seeing it again about halfway through the film or three-quarters of the way through the film, and then being reminded of, oh, okay, this is where we were at the beginning. I don't really like seeing the same thing twice. I guess it's kind of like a deviation from the myth of Sisyphus, where you roll that boulder up to the top, and then you have to just roll the boulder up to the top again, where it's wasted labor and it's repetitive, and that's your hell. Well, I really only like those types of gimmicks in a film if they're done very, very intelligently. And here, I feel like it's kind of a, a cheap gimmick. In other words, if they just removed the first 45 seconds of the film, I don't think it would have taken anything away from the remainder of the film. But that's okay, because like in Michael Mann's collateral film, the first 10 minutes... You've got Jamie Foxx and Jada Pinkett Smith talking, and their dialogue is not necessarily integral to the remainder of the film, but I still like that scene on its own merit, so there is a difference there. But for purposes of this, I say they could have they could have nixed that. We get a cat on a sofa, and it is very cute. It is nowhere near as cute or as otherworldly in its magnificence as Othello, but it's always nice to see a cat. It's kind of like that association, you know, like when you drive your own car and then you see it on the road. Wham Bam Cam was just talking about that the other day on Audible Ally on Spotify, his own podcast. But I love when I see cats now because I have a newfound appreciation for them in film. In fact, before, I don't even remember if a cat was in a movie that I saw before I owned OJ and Othello. But now, I definitely recognize cats. I'm that pedant that's like, oh, look, look at that cat. And then I try to guess the cat's breed or how well it's being maintained. But, you know, whatever. Association gets you every time. Okay, that is a filthy door on that apartment. That door is disgusting and it needs to be cleaned with a fucking pressure washer. Oh shit, we got a breach from a SWAT team. There's some shit going down here, which we will soon see because there is a wheelbarrow full of cocaine on the table, which of course reminds me of Scarface or Last Action Hero when the two cops are rolling up to the house and they're like, hey, this doesn't really look like a henchman's headquarters. And the other guy says, well, what'd you expect? A couple guys on the front lawn throwing cocaine at each other? <laughs> okay, Bruce looks terrible. His eyes, his stagger. His great acting is shown here through his body language and his gut and just how pathetic and dried up and beat down and embattled with life and things that he's seen as a NYPD police officer. He looks terrible and I love it because it's unexpected. 
Now, you were told not to touch anything, Bruce Willis. And what's the first thing he does? He starts sifting through the kitchen, takes a bottle of liquor from the victim or whoever was killed at this scene, and he starts helping himself to some drinking on the job and reading a newspaper on the sofa. And then he gets back to the precinct and he's offered breath mints by his assistant, the switchboard operator, whatever the fuck. And wow, so the whole department is aware of what a drunkard he is. He immediately reaches into his desk and pulls out an empty bottle of liquor, and he's devastated beyond words that there isn't any left. But I can tell you that there were many times where I was tempted at my white collar to go to the Sonic down the street and get myself a Route 44 cranberry limeade and then add some gin to it. I don't know if I ever did or not. I might have done it twice, maybe three times. But anything to get out of having to deal with the shackles of a white collar environment. Yep. I said that in 56 episodes of Chemo Ox Sessions White Collar Black Belt, and I'm saying it now. While this is an anthology series, I have allowed myself the privilege of there being continual overlap. So sometimes I will talk about films and White Collar Black Belt, and other times I will talk about White Collar Black Belt activities and pesky, perturbing nuisances, and these slick flick picks. There you have it. It's called reciprocity or a symbiotic relationship. He's asked to do this one last assignment, and he says, I signed out. <laughs> and the guy's like, really? You signed the sheet? He's like, well, not technically, but I'm signed out. Like, I'm checked out. I do not want to be here. I want to be home. And the guy says, well, take it anyway. You're on overtime then. And I'm like, okay, take the overtime. Because all you got to do, as in the words of his partner, who's given him this last assignment, says, look, you have 118 minutes to get a little hemorrhoid 16 blocks. Wow. A little hemorrhoid. That sounds like a big fucking problem. The movie is one hour and 41 minutes and 41 seconds in length. The guy says he has 118 minutes to get this guy from A to B. Well, already the time doesn't jive because 118 minutes would be two minutes shy of two hours and the film is 19 minutes under two hours. That's what the pedants do with these movies is they want to find little flaws and continuity errors so they can wave a flag and say how brilliant they are and how dullard and dumb the rest of us are. This is not the nick of time flick with Johnny Depp. That's 90 minutes long. It's a little different. And I don't mind that there's a deviation between the times. It's just funny when you think about when you're making a movie, you almost have to make it to silence all of the purported naysayers that are going to appear and they are going to spend hours talking about all the flaws in the film. And that's not what Slick Flick Pick is. This is a celebration of cinema. I'm not sitting here with a gun shooting big piles of empty liquor bottles from Bruce Willis's desk at the plot holes or the inconsistencies. I'm here to talk about the quality of the acting and the skill of the craft. Oh shit, you got two guys putting on suppressors? Uh-oh. Looks like they're for real. I don't care how shittily you dress. If you're putting suppressors on a nice pistol, you're probably not bird hunting. As most Def is leaving his prison cell, his fellow convict is answering a riddle. At the time, it sounds like gibberish, but it will be important later. He's in the back of Bruce Willis's police car being transported, and he says that, wow, these patrol cars always smell like Lysol and vomit. That's disgusting. How many of these have you been in? Well, we'll learn, based on his lifestyle, probably a few. He tells them to put on the Hawaii Five O light so that they can get to the courthouse quicker. But Bruce Willis has other ideas, like restocking his liquor pour. Now, he says, my favorite line of the film, life's too short and guys like you make it even longer. Bruce Willis doesn't even want to live. He's that fucking far gone. He's depressed. He's despondent. He's inconsolable. He's just tired and numb from life and his surroundings. Bruce Willis in this film reminds me of Nicolas Cage in that great film Bringing Out the Dead, where I mentioned some quotes when I interviewed the medic or Croesus on episode 52 or 53 of White Collar Black Belt. And that was a trudge of a movie to get through. It was fucking depressing. But he drank straight out of the bottle at this liquor store that's one of his little undesignated stops. And he knows the clerks by name. <laughs> so he has been drinking all around town for a long time. There's no doubt about that. And then, of course, we're shown the time or we're told the time, which is it's 8-11. I think time is an important factor of this film because it's kind of like a ticking time bomb where something has to occur in a window of time. And there's a lot riding on it, not for purposes of the plot only, but for the characters' lives and any potential ramifications. And we get this great misdirection with the bullet strike. A bullet is fired, you think it hit party A, but it actually hit party B, and it's really cool. I don't mind how it was a misdirection at all, I liked it. And now we've got one dead crook, 
I see that Bruce Willis's shooting skills from Die Hard remain hard and fucking fast. And I don't mind the slow-mo effect here. I think it's effective. I think it's cool how the camera just kind of slowly pans to Bruce Willis's face. He may be drunk and he may be hungover. His athletic dipstick may be two drops short of bone dry, but he still has his fucking marksmanship abilities. And I think it's funny how he's driving an Impala, which I always historically made jokes that an Impala is the perfect police car because the taillights look like two donuts. I shit you not. Bruce's moving in the film, his walking, the way he carries himself, to me, again, is really great acting. I also think it's funny that he knows this bartender by name. Apparently, he knows the name of every joint, dive bar, and shitty place and shitty establishment all throughout this entire city. Here is a guy who lives where he polices. In a lot of these films, the cops or the law enforcement members are given shit because they live outside of some of these poverty-rich areas that they patrol every day. But here's an example of a detective who lives in the city that he polices, and I think that's cool. Morse, David Morse, who 90% of the time is the villain in just about every film. He's the villain in 12 Monkeys. He's the villain in Extreme Measures. He's the villain in The Rock. He's the villain in just about everything. And here, the director had him chewing gum. And I think that's such a clever, cool, cheap trick to use in film because it gives them something to do when the camera is zooming in on their face. And in a way, it kind of adds to the acting. Like if they're clenching their teeth, if they're deep in thought, that same tactic was actually used for George Clooney in the film The American, where he plays a quiet, private gentleman assassin who travels around the world and builds weapons for assassins. But chewing the gum can show things that just a jaw that's not moving can't necessarily project or convey. So I don't mind the the gum chewing, and I think it's kind of a cool little trick. Now, of course, Bruce Willis is helping himself to some Canadian club at the bar, yummy. I think he drinks more on the clock than he does off. It's actually kind of a great idea. It saves time. Less alcohol you have to pour when you get off. You can just enjoy your drunkenness. David Morse, who plays Detective Nugent, is acting really fucking weird here. And Bruce is kind of picking up on it. But I like that Bruce doesn't talk a whole lot in this film. He talks enough, but he can let his acting ability wash over his countenance and his visage and portray to the audience just what he's thinking without having to say it. And that, to me, is the definition of quintessential acting at its finest. And he is picking up on the fact that there's some weird magumbo brewing, but it's finally capitalized on when most Def shuts the fuck up for the first time in this film. He has been incessantly talking and rambling and bitching and complaining, talking about his dreams and his mistakes and the false arrests and all this shit. But he finally shuts the fuck up. And in that moment, Bruce detects that something is amiss. That actually reminds me almost identically to the scene in the film Ransom with Mel Gibson, where the boy, his boy, gets deathly silent and starts peeing down his leg when he hears the voice of his former captor, Gary Sinise. It's not identical to that because I think that Mostef gets quiet for a couple of reasons. One, because he realizes that these cops are dirty. And I think when this one guy comes in, that's the guy that Mostef recognizes as the supreme dirty cop that was like robbing drug dealers or doing all kinds of shit. But it's a very good scene that's tense. And it's engrossing. And if Bruce Willis's acting was shitty here, it would have landed extremely flat. But it doesn't. It's got a lot of dimension to it. And it pops. It fucking pops. Like about the 300 bullets that are fired in this film, at least. This film kind of reminds me, and I'm going to mention this a couple times, of The Negotiator. Where you've got this pack of dirty cops in this department. You've got someone trying to proclaim their innocence. You've got a standoff where one cop is against these other cops. So he knows their rules and their regulations. And of course, in The Negotiator, you have David Morse again, who technically is the good guy, but he's kind of a hard-ass good guy, not very easy to like. So I guess in addition to being the villain, he often plays characters that are difficult to like. That's probably more specific. He's still kind of a villain to me in that way. This kid, most deaf, testified, or he's going to testify, against another cop named Jerry. But David Morse's concern is that Jerry's going to roll over on a lot of them. So it's self-interest and it's corruption. That is what is driving the villains of this plot. Oh, and now we see this this good-looking black dude. I've recognized him from Eraser and Conspiracy Theory. He's got a great face, and he doesn't talk much in this film. He just, he's just kind of one of the unnamed villains. But he's actually a good actor, and I like him. So he's a welcome addition to this conspiracy of dirty cops. And I definitely recognize him from Eraser and Conspiracy Theory, which Conspiracy Theory also has Mel Gibson, because I've already mentioned a Mel Gibson film. And Eraser has Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
which ties it back to the beginning when I said that Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Sylvester Stallone were all investors of the Planet Hollywood restaurant chain. And if you go back one slick flick pick 15 minutes, slick flick pick 15, there was a Sylvester Stallone shrine that was damaged in what had to have been a Planet Hollywood restaurant there in New York. Also, note that this is pick 16 and it's 16 blocks. That is no unintentional fucking quinkinink. It was all by design. That is my modus operandi, to be as clever and cunning as I possibly can, to make up for all those times where I misspeak and I act like a total fucking buffoon, through no fault of my own, of course. And then, of course, Bruce Willis ditches the shotgun that he pulls on those fools because he has to, because the shell that he ultimately fires at them was 20 years old and he's lucky it fired at all. But there's that scene where John McClane, the former John McClane, pulls a double barrel and holds the cops hostage so that he can escape with most death. And we get Angel from fucking Dexter. Holy shit. Another welcome addition to this growing clan of corrupt cops. And that's the great moment that David Moore says, this changes everything, Jack. It's excellent delivery of a line from villainous vocals of David Morse. And then we get another reminder as to the time. Oh, it's 825. Thanks for the clock reminder on the 10 o'clock appointment that we must make. We learn that the captain is dirty too, or he, he is at least more than tangentially involved in what's happening with these dirty fucking cops. David Moore says, look, we woke this guy up, Bruce Willis, and these are his streets, which means he's going to be a worthy fucking adversary, which he proves to be. Now, Bruce ultimately goes to his sister's house, who we will meet later, and there's a discussion about leaving the toilet seat up or putting it down, and I think what it's implying is that the sister is dating somebody or she's back with a guy that Bruce Willis does not approve of. That's the only thing I can figure, but I'm not sure. And then Eddie Bunker, played by Most Def, says, it's a long way to go for a stranger. I like his dialogue in this, and I'm going to talk about him a little later. But then, boom, basically, you think that they're about to get ousted by Angel from Dexter, who's sneaking up on them, or Angel from Dexter, but they actually get the drop on him, they handcuff him to the wall, and they take his gun. Well done, Bruce Willis. Oh, well, why do you bolt, Eddie, right when Bruce Willis is getting interesting? Well, worry not, cinematic fanatics, because this will be explained, and even though it's dumb for him to run and leave the only protection that he has, he has his reasons. And then, I like that Eddie's trying to get into the subway, but he doesn't have any money, so he can't swipe himself in. He asked about 50 New York denizens if they will let him in, and they all decline. But then a black officer in a blue police uniform is kind enough to let him in. I didn't even take this to be like a brother-to-brother nod or any sort of racial game or sympathy that the director was trying to play. I think it was truly a case of you have one cop trying to help this guy who is clearly struggling to arrive at a destination that he has mentioned multiple times he has to get to. And I think he's just doing him a kindness. And I appreciate that. Not everything in a movie or a show or a visual representation has to have six meanings to it. Now, I admit that for purposes of slick flick picks, I try to find meanings so that I can speak on it in great detail with some provocative pondering. But at this point, I have to just take things at face value. And some cops do protect and serve. And also, I don't even think it was shown kind of a yin and yang where you've got these dirty cops, and then you have these wholesome cops. I think it was just one human fucking life form, biped mammal creature helping another. And that's it. And I like that. We got more bad dudes in the subway. We got some fucking cell phone tracking going on in Chinatown. I love when they portray Chinatown, regardless of what city it's in. I always think it has kind of this cool intrigue to it that I just want them to linger around in it for far longer. I mean, hell, even in Chinatown, which was the second slick flick pick that I did with Red Devil, co-host Red Devil, they're only in Chinatown for like five minutes, and I really want to see more of Chinatown. We learn that Eddie is a thief, along with a litany of other complaints and demurs against his character. And, oh shit, hand shot. So Bruce Willis is shot in the hand, and they're on top of this roof fleeing, being outflanked by a shit ton of bad guys. And you know what comes to mind? You guessed it. The very first Die Hard. Rooftop gunfire. I love it. It never gets old. Now, also, as I've already talked about several of these dirty cops, one of them looks a shit ton like Eric fucking Stoltz, who you remember from Pulp Fiction, maybe you remember from The Prophecy, but he's a good actor, but I don't really know this guy, but he looks a lot like Eric fucking Stoltz. Lookalike, celebrity doppelganger, shapeshifter, whatever the fuck he is. Well done, Bruce Willis, because this is narrow escape number 13, but worry not, there will be 16 by the end of this slick flick pick, thus the title, 16 Blocks. We note that Bruce Willis is wearing a Casio watch, 
think about it like this from almost a theology perspective. There's six sturdy cops, 16 blocks. That's almost the mark of the beast. That's almost 666. And then, of course, David Morse is taunting him, which he does a great job of doing throughout the film. David Morse has a lot of presence. He's a massive man. That's why I made a comment in the introduction that he has like a a Nordic or Viking-like size to him. But he also is very soft-spoken, except, of course, when he's yelling. But he's very persuasive, and he's very calm, and he's trying really hard to convince Bruce Willis that, hey, just do what you always do. You know, look the other way. Like, let us take, he keeps using these reassuring phrases, you know, kind of like at the white collar where they, where you go to your manager and you say, yeah, so quadrant three and four on these statistics and our recovery numbers are completely fucking abysmal. And I don't even think that this voodoo math is adding up. And then they give you these vague assurances like, thank you for your awareness. We'll take it from here. Or never you mind. You just get back on your post and we'll, we'll manage this out. Yeah, the fuck you will. So that's exactly what's happening here. It's just more slippery fucking corruption talk. That's all it is. He says, in in addition to taunting him, he's like, look, this kid is sharper than you, Bruce Willis, and he spent more than half of his life in prison. He can't be trusted. He's a street urchin. He's a bottom feeder. And just just let us take care of it, and and we'll, we'll get you home. We'll give you a ride home. Of course, at this point, Bruce has like six guns now, as he's been disarming these cops left and right and taking their guns. Which completes the Mark of the Beast reference I just made. 16 blocks, that's one six. Six sturdy cops, that's six number two. And to complete this evil fucking trifecta or unholy trinity, six collected gats. Six, six, six. Holy shit. And that actually takes me back to pick 10, which was End of Days, which was all about the Mark of the Beast. Man, this is a day for references and association. And then he gets mean. David Moore says, yeah, you know, you have your gimpy leg and your shot up hand. Holy shit, man. Way to kick a guy when he's down with one leg. Oh, and we see a little cameo from this guy, Uncle Benny. He played Uncle Benny in Lethal Weapon 4. He's a good actor. He's always It's always good to see him. And then we're told via Bruce Willis on a communication call with the DA, you got a leak in your office, Miss DA. You better get on that shit. And then, of course, she talks about how shoe, this dirty cop shoe, bent, but he did not break. And then, of course, they make a joke about Yu-Gi-Oh!, this is between Most Def and the guy who was Uncle Benny in Lethal Weapon 4. And of course, Uncle Benny recognizes Yu-Gi-Oh! That's not a racially insensitive comment. That's simply an observation made about how he reacts in the presented scope of this film. There you go. And then, of course, Most Def gets a great line. You can be smart every day, though. Okay, that's a good line. I like it. And now it's speed. Okay, this film then transitions into speed where we have a bus and we have a potential calamity unfolding on this very tensely paced hostage situation that unfolds on this bus smack in the middle of town oh and i love how bruce willis who's got bags under his eyes the size of the spy balloon that flew over our country he's got these huge bags under his eyes he's bleeding he's disheveled his suit's like three times too baggy he's got six guns on his person and he tells these people these hoi polloi on this bus to stand in front of the window and basically present themselves as mammalian human fucking shields. Wow. He says they won't shoot you and they instantly comply. That was absolutely insane. What that bus scene with him having the patrons on the bus get up and surround the window acting as human shields and then putting newspaper on the bus, that reminds me of The Siege, also with Bruce Willis and Denzel Washington. But it's a very well done scene. Of course, this also makes me think of The Negotiator because there's a great scene in The Negotiator where you've got this sniper who has been tasked to put down Danny Roman, played by Samuel Jackson. And this sniper is uh, Michael Kudlitz, who's a great actor. He's in The Walking Dead and a shit ton of other things. But he is friends with Samuel Jackson and the negotiator. So he hesitates on taking the shot. And David Morris is yelling into the radio and he's like, take the shot, take the shot, take the goddamn shot. And he's like, copy. And then David Morris, who of course is bad in this movie, says, take the fucking shot. Don't tell me fucking copy. Take the goddamn shot. It's great. Very intense. Now, I prefer The Negotiator. The Negotiator is like an 8.5 to me. This movie's like a 7, but a 7 is still a good score. And depending on how you did in your scholastic achievements, a 70 for a long time was passing. I have no clue what the grading structure is now, but I like the scene. And whether you love the flick or not, you can't deny that it has a certain enthralling motivation and a satisfying conclusion to it. These cops are trying to assess the mental competence of Bruce Willis's character. 
and they make a comment in passing that he's been to the farm twice. The best I was able to research, I think they're talking about like a slang term for the insane asylum. Possibly he was seeing a company shrink. I don't know exactly. But we do get the letters HNT, which stands for Hostage Crisis Negotiator. Okay, that makes sense. That's very linear. Now we get a little cameo that doesn't have any dialogue, but I recognized his face immediately, which is totally fucking ironic when I explain who he is. But on the front of the bus, like the front left bus passenger, is Jagan Hagar from Game of Thrones. He played a faceless man that took the identity of a, a Larathi criminal. And that's funny because I'm so great with faces, and yet in that show, he played the faceless man. But I recognized him instantly. He also was an assassin in season two Jack Ryan show, who of course loses an eye throughout the course of that. He's a solid actor, but he's just a pretty face here. And then I love how Bruce Willis threw the phone out of the bus to say in no uncertain terminology, I'm not in the mood, okay? This negotiation is over. Then of course he tells Mostef that they're going to breach the bus in less than five minutes. And this is true because Bruce Willis knows the score because he is a fucking cop. His misdirection only buys a little bit of time. He lets everyone off the bus including most deaf dressed as a passenger. And he starts leaving his last will and testament on the bus that we saw at the beginning of the movie, which was totally unnecessary at the beginning of the movie, because it happens here. And as we still have 20 minutes to go of the film, Bruce Willis is alive at this point. Something unexpected happens. Basically, David Morris is really pissed off because he can't shoot most deaf, who's wearing a suit now, because of the misdirection. But he's really pissed he can't shoot him because there's like 5,000 witnesses and he's unarmed. But what I didn't see coming was that Mostef actually gets back on the bus to help his newfound amigo, Bruce Willis. I didn't see that coming. I thought he was just going to hightail it out of there, as he has shit to do and his life is in jeopardy. But that's when he talks about how Chuck Berry changed, Barry White changed, people can change, which is a direct response to what Bruce Willis had said previously, which is that people don't change, seasons change, but people don't change. Well, I'll look that up. So regarding Barry White, in an interview with Rolling Stone, Barry White said that I'm an ex-gangbanger, I came from the Southeast LA, and I didn't only hear about the 1965 riot, I was in it. Point is, is that he wasn't that same man later in life as he was at the beginning, so he changed. His brother died in 1983 because a man shot him in the heart. So that was taken from grunge, Barry White's tragic real-life story. But then Chuck Berry, in 1944, he was arrested and convicted of armed robbery and stealing a car at gunpoint in Kansas City. And of course, you know, he would improve and he was not that same person later in life. And that was from the famous people profiles, Chuck Berry. So I knew that there was, there had to be something to most Def's claim in the film. And then there you have it. So these are just two examples of people that he was familiar with their history. And he used them as kind of a desperate attempt to try to get Bruce Willis's attention so that it was no longer a suicide run for Bruce Willis. And then of course, Bruce Willis does the great Bruce Willis thing which is conveying a shit ton or a library of words in four words. Eddie, you're killing me. I love it. Now, for those pedants out there, it is bus number 8420, which is interesting because two goes into four, four goes into eight, two also goes into eight. They're all divisible by each other. Ah, very interesting. Now, the bus is empty. Oh, shit. SWAT team fooled. You know where else they were fooled? In a previous film, The Negotiator, which I prefer, but it's really cool. Oh shit, most deaf is bleeding, he got shot, and I love when actors are wearing a white shirt that they get shot in, because then the blood shows up so crystal clearly, and I love it. Now we learn a little backstory, which honestly I don't really give a shit about, because at this point, I'm in the here and the now in the film, I'm not as interested in what came before, but we learn that there's $31,000 that's in a locker that he needs to open a bakery, which is his newfound life's ambition, but the lockers are cleaned out after a specified period of time, so he has to get this $31,000 from this locker. And it's at Port Authority, and he needs to be there at 12 to get the money. Also, we learn that Bruce has a very sightly red-headed sister. And the place that they were at earlier, where he gets a gun out of a red EMS bag from a closet, is actually her place where he has his gun in a bag, I guess, as a spare. Oh, and then, of course, his sister's name is Diane. But she's very pretty, and she's a very welcome sibling here, because she is a great helper. She asks very few questions. She shows up on time. She puts her own career and her freedom on the line to help him in this bizarre set of circumstances. And for my two very estranged half-sisters out there, if you're listening, I hope that one day when I am transporting a former convict who is on the mend of making some very productive life decisions, I hope that you will show up in a back alley to help my witness, who is a, the unfortunate recipient of a gunshot wound, 
And I hope that you ask me no questions. And I hope that you put everything on the line for me. Not because I feel like I deserve it, but because if sibling blood runs deep, even though you're my half siblings, maybe we run half as deep, but half deep is still deep. Just like half a hole is still a hole. Am I right? It adds up. It adds up. We get this interesting reveal that it is not Most Def's birthday, which he claimed to this girl on the bus who was scared and seeking comfort. That was simply a white lie told for the girl's sake. He doesn't even know his own birthday because he bounced around adoption homes or some shit. I don't know. But he never even met his sister, but he knows he has a sister in Seattle. That's Most Def. So after he gets this money, he wants to open a bakery in Seattle. Of course, Seattle is nowhere near New York City, so that's a long flight. And then, of course, there's an Angelina Jolie reference, which is funny, but I had to double check. Like, was Bruce Willis ever involved with Angelina Jolie? And from what I can tell, at least on Wikipedia, he was not. Like, they never dated and they were never married. Now we get this nice little trickery, this ambulance switcheroo. It's kind of a dice game of chance. Now, it's pure misdirection, and Ebert, who I will get to a little later, he had things to say about that. I didn't mind it because they already have this established pattern throughout this entire slick flick pick that Bruce Willis is like one step ahead of law enforcement, and he's constantly figuring out clever, innovative ways to elude the shit out of them. We then learned that Bruce was the one that should have testified, but he was going to let most death do it because he had no backbone and he was being a bad guy. He was one of those corrupt cops that we have alluded to for several minutes of the 16 Blocks film. And then he has this life epiphany where he determines, I was supposed to meet you, most deaf after all. And then, of course, we get this confrontation between Bruce Willis and David Morse, where we learn that these cops have killed people. He stuck his gun in the mouth of Mr. Ling, and he died from a heart attack. And I love David Morse as the villain here. Like, Bruce Willis is exhausted. He's out of breath. He's just over it. And he just wants to turn himself in and be done, clear his conscience. But David Morse is just pure fucking evil, and I love it. So what if a guy died? You know, fuck the truth. Those are the three most important words that he will utter in this film. Meanwhile, here comes Angel of Death. That's Angel from Dexter, the great TV show. And he's going to try to shoot Bruce Willis in the back. But Bruce Willis is trying to work out a negotiation with the DA to get Eddie Bunker's record expunged so that he can open up his cake bakery and have cakes as every day is a birthday is going to be his company credo. But again, very suspenseful here. There's just elements of other films in this film. Like there's mention of the 14th Precinct, several corrupt cops. This film feels like Copland from 1997, which also has Sylvester Stallone in it. And it feels like The Negotiator, 1998. And it has elements of Pride and Glory, which would come later in 2008, two years later. But it's this idea of this like brotherhood and this fractured blue line, us against them. Cops can't trust other cops. Some cops are grass eaters. Other cops are meat eaters. It sounds like these guys are pure fucking meat eaters, which means they're like robbing drug dealers and beating the shit out of people, possibly even killing them. Oh, and then we have this great sniper. So it's like kind of like a pseudo Chris Kyle here. He's like lip reading at this courthouse and he was able to read the dangerous situation between the lines and he's able to execute on hell from Dexter and get him off the fucking earth, thus save the fucking day, which is awesome. Now, David Morse better learn Morse code in prison to communicate with his cellmates because Bruce Willis had taken a tape recording recording of his dire deeds and his diabolical intention, and it's fantastic. Now, I watched the alternate ending, and the alternate ending is longer, but really the difference is that Bruce Willis has his change of heart. He goes in to testify. He has a tape recording of David Morse. The sniper shoots, and, and all this stuff happens, but the difference is, is that David Morse does not tell Angel from Dexter to kill him. He tells him to basically call it off, but they can't communicate because of the concrete or something where he's in the basement or he's in a lower level. So Angel shoots. He actually hits Jack Mosley, kills him. David Morse tries to push him out of the way. He's too late. So Bruce Willis dies in the alternate ending. David Morse's nefarious master plan is still revealed because the tape recording automatically starts playing when he jumps on Bruce Willis's body to try to thwart the assassination. And then, of course, the cake that will arrive at the end of the film still gets delivered, but it gets delivered to Bruce Willis's sister, and she sees the cake, and then she um, she starts crying. But in this film, which is the what I saw in the theater and then what I saw on this DVD, is Bruce Willis turns himself in. He spends two years in the pen, which I don't know what kind of life that's like for a cop, a dirty cop, to be in prison for two years. It's kind of like what Keanu Reeves said in Constantine. How would you like to go to a prison where all the inmates were sent there by you? But he gets out of prison. 
and it's his birthday, and he's celebrating with his sister, and they have a good relationship. And then he gets a cake from, you guessed it, most deaf, that says, here are the people that have changed. Chuck Berry, Barry White, Eddie Bunker, and Jack fucking Mosley. And it's a great ending. Now, most deaf, I had only ever heard of him as a rapper, and I don't know traditionally how rappers do with acting. I know that I liked Marshall Mathers was good in a film portraying, you know, 8 Mile Eminem. But I think he wasn't acting. I think he was just living his life on screen. But there are some good rapper actors. Master P is one of them. I liked him in Dark Blue. And I thought Most Def was quietly mesmerizing in this film. His demeanor and his speech pattern is annoying and it's grating, but it's that way by design. He has some real shiny moments where you feel really bad for him as a person. You, you feel for him. And, you know, you can see why it's believable that Bruce Willis decides to put so much on the line to save this inconsequential stranger at the beginning. And so I think Most Def does a great job. And it's very unexpected what he brings to the film. And of course, Bruce Willis and David Morse are solid as they are very often solid. So I think the acting is what does good work for this film. And it elevates it above your traditional boilerplate, you know, detective crime thriller. Some of the reviews, about 5.9 out of 10. Eh. Despite strong performances from Bruce Willis and Most Def, 16 Blocks barely rises above being a shopworn entry in the buddy action genre. That's from Rotten Tomatoes. However, we're going to get to Ebert now, who gave this three out of four stars, which is a solid score. Bruce Willis plays Detective Jack Mosley, a tired drunk in 16 blocks. He's a detective who doesn't have the energy to be a cop. Jack goes to get this guy, who is named Eddie Bunker and is played by Most Deaf, as a motormouth who talks all the time, and I mean all the time, in a litany of complaints about his treatment, his life, and his fate. Eddie has the kind of voice that makes fingernails on a blackboard sound like Kenny G. <laughs> I like how he says this. Bruce Willis makes a pit stop at a liquor store. Coming out, he sees the wrong kind of guy making the wrong kinds of moves on the witness in the car, and he shoots the guy, which is an admirable decision-making under the circumstances. That's the setup for 16 Blocks, which is a chase picture conducted at a velocity that is just about right for a middle-aged alcoholic. 16 Blocks, unlike the film Running Scared, which I've also seen, and that actually, uh, Running Scared has the villain from 15 minutes in it, the Czech villain. But it's more of a character study, a two-hander about how Jack has been fed up with the department for a long time, and Eddie's sweet, goofy nature tilts the balance. The chase scenes involve Chinatown, traffic jams, and a standoff on a bus that may owe something to the 2002 Brazilian film, Bus 174. I haven't seen that, but the connection that I made was to The Siege with Bruce Willis and Denzel Washington. None of this is particularly new, but all of it is done well. And Mose Def does the same thing here that Austin Pendleton did in Dirty Work. He comes in from left field with a character performance that's completely unexpected in an action movie. At first, Ebert found that irritating, but then he began to wonder if something was going on beneath the surface. Eventually, he was able to pick up the buried message, which was frightened, sincere, and hiding behind self-satire. I feel the same way, Ebert. We totally agree on that. The bedrock of the plot is the dogged determination of the Bruce Willis character. Now, this is my favorite fucking part of this review. Jack may be middle-aged, he may be tired, he may be balding, he may be a drunk, but if he's played by Bruce Willis, you do not want to fuck with him. Okay, that's my little spin on it. You do not want to bet against him. He gets that look in his eye that says, it's going to be a pain in the ass for me to do this, but I couldn't live with myself if I didn't. I'll always believe that more easily than the look that merely says, I will prevail, because this is an action picture, and I play the hero. In the pantheon of slick flick picks so far, Cinematic Fanatics, this one is lower on the totem pole, but I do enjoy it. It does have 16 in the title. I do own it. I do not have a framed poster of it, but I have watched this film about seven times, and the first time I watched it was in the theater, and the last time I watched it was last night. There you have it. Also, as one last little reminder, please check out Wham Bam Cam's podcast, Audible Ally, two words, on all of the streaming platforms. It's on Audible, it's on Anchor, it's on Spotify, it's on Apple Podcast. But he's got some great content and he just released his 15th episode where he has a guest speaker. So head on over there and listen to Audible Ally at your leisure. Some flicks make my worthwhile cinephile cult cut selection, but upon an additional viewing and older reflection, don't sustain perfection, seed to dissection, and critical rejection. I confess to you now a statement 
uncouth. This flick is slick, but not in the top-tier shelf placement of my most beloved picks. I still immensely enjoy the pace, performances, the underdog hero's tricks, traps, and decoys, how Eddie Bunker does not even know his own goddamn birthday, but shares a minute white lie to that gal on the bus for what the shiz was he supposed to say. He lied to the clueless little girl, then Bruce finally unveils the truth, with his tape recorder and coat pocket. He goads Morse to proclaim, FUCK THE TRUTH! To this day, I believe Frank Nugent is not chewing gum, but nibbling on the remnants of the nougaty goodness relic crumbles of a baby Ruth. I remain always your fellow fiend for films, your worthwhile fucking cinephile, and you are my cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least edible, for my next Slick Flick Pick. Pick 17. Slick Flick Pick. Black Male Widow. What's Grief to a Thief? Widows. 2018. Falsetto Prophet. Please check out Audible Ally on Spotify by Wham Bam Cam. Please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review as many comments as you like. No upper limit. I appreciate you cinematic fanatics. And I am always your worthwhile fucking cinephile. Falsetto out.